You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, I love my church, and I hope you love your church, and I hope you love Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church, and that's just a beautiful thing. I want to walk you through three types of love. It's not on your outline, but take out your outline, because today's message is going to be really personal for you. I think it's going to be something that God's going to be speaking to your heart. I think there's some important information there that I want you to participate with as we walk through today's sermon. But what's not on the sermon is uh, three different types of love. And the first one is that there is uh, phileo. In Greek, the word phileo is like the city of Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. And so that's where you say like, oh, I, I, you might say it about your church. I love my church. But to you, if you mean phileo, you mean like My church is where maybe some friends are at. Or or my church, I'm a fan of my church. You don't love the church erotically or maybe even sacrificially, but you just just like the people, you like that experience, you like the environment, and you might say, I I flay on my church. You might say that God is your homeboy. He's not. Not in that way, right? But you might, that's maybe how you feel. You're a fan of the church, but you're not really fully committed. You're just kind of like, hey, I love it. Like maybe you love a sports team or something else. Uh, The next word for love is the word eros, and the word eros is where we get the word erotic, and it's talking about sexual love, that kind of sexual nature of love, and and when you say that, you would say that about your husband or wife in a committed relationship because God created sex, and sex is awesome because God created it within the confines of a husband-wife relationship, and, and that's what you would mean there. Now, our culture gets this mixed up. We say the word love, and we think it almost always means erotic love. That's what our culture preaches and teaches. And and you say, oh, I I love that, or I love this person, or you'll say that you love that to really just get something that you want erotically, but you don't love in the third type of love, which would be agape. And agape love is sacrificial love. It's what Jesus did when he said, I love you this much. And he had his arms stretched out, and he hung on a cross to take your sin. Imagine that for just a minute. Jesus, who had never sinned, he had never tasted sin, took all of our sin upon himself, the guilt, the shame, the sin, the embarrassment, the the weight of it on the cross, and bore God's righteous wrath against it on himself. That sacrifice, did he deserve it? No. Was it all about him? No. But he did it out of love for us. I love you enough, I'm willing to sacrifice for you. And it's kind of that way, like, if you want a church where you just want to be a fan of the church, then you're going to look for a church that revolves around you, that it better satisfy what you perceive to be your needs, and you're going to say, hey, uh, the church is all about me and my experience while I'm there, and then what happens is you might go to that church, but you might miss God, because the church is all about God and his receptivity. If God is not pleased by the end of today, then we haven't done our job as a church, right? You haven't done your job as lifting him up. If God's not pleased by the end of today with all of our worship of him and the word that's spoken, then, then we haven't done our job. We, why are we here, right? We want to please God. But when we make a church all about ourselves, then we say, I'm a consumer. I'm not a contributor. But we know it's way better to love the church like Jesus did, the model he gave us. We're to love it like that, that we love it sacrificially. That we say, listen, we are the church, and we don't exist for ourselves. We're the church, and one of our values here at Sun Grove is we are the church, and we exist for the world. That what happens in here needs to make a difference in the world out there. It's not just supposed to begin and end inside here, right? It makes a difference out there. So we, and then we say, we say yes to things that we, well, we actually say no to some of the things that we love, 
so we can say yes to things we love even more. And that's how savings happens, right? You say no to something that you really love, so you can say yes to something that you really, really love. And that's how it works. And, and that's what we do as a church. Sometimes it's an honor for us to sacrifice the, to the Lord. So we give God the first. We honor him by our preferences. We say, oh, I lay my preferences down to honor and lift up God. Because one of our high values is that we are the church and we exist for the world. And also that it's an honor to sacrifice for Christ and for his church. That we're not just living all about our lives or this place here and now. But we live for his kingdom. And so we sacrifice in that way. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He's actually in a sacrificial season. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. So he's sacrificing his freedom. He's sacrificing his preferences. He doesn't get to choose his meals. It's not a happy place to be. But he's writing to a church that he's never been to. One of the churches he planted went on to plant Colossae. And he's writing to them because some false ideas and behaviors and harmful things have been infiltrating the church and being preached in that way. And so if you have your Bible, open with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes this, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He begins to draw this picture out, and I want this morning for this message to be very personal for you. So in your outline, you've got some fill-in-the-blanks, and the first fill-in-the-blank at the beginning of the sentence is going to be your name. So will you put your name there? Uh, for me, it would say this. It would say, Dave has been raised with Christ, and my heart can be seated with him in heaven. In other words, Paul is saying, since his death on the cross was sufficient to cover all your sin, and now your identity is in him, and you're laying aside yourself, the earthly nature, your ways, and you're saying, now I'm picking up this life with Christ. It's that you and I, it's like our life isn't all about our life anymore. We associate with the death of Christ. That's why he says, you died. You're associating with the death, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, like that's what we model with baptism, death, burial, resurrection, and that we're saying, my life has been associated now with what Christ did on the cross. Because of that, I am saved. And so here's a beautiful picture. Since you were dead, but now you've been raised, Dave has been raised with Christ, and my heart can be seated with him in heaven. You say, well, what does that mean? It means that we associate with Christ's authority, his power, his position. He's given us no longer calling us servants, but calls us his friends, that we come alongside and we say, my new identity is through Christ. I've died to myself, and my new identity is in him. Now, here's the beautiful thing. In parliament, politicians will sometimes talk down to lower politicians or newer politicians, uh, because in parliament, where you sit determines uh, your authority. There's a whole seating structure, as in, in many government forms, ours included, that where you sit is representative of the authority that you have. You can put the Speaker of the House in a different seat than just an average person, right? And so he, what Parliament will say to younger Parliament people, they will say, how you stand depends on where you sit. Did you hear that? How you stand 
with what authority you stand, with what projection you stand, it depends on where in the orchestration of authority you sit, where in the lineup you sit. It's true in the boardroom, isn't it? It's true in the office, isn't it? How you stand depends on where you sit. And what you and I need to begin to wrap our minds around is that we associate with Christ, that we are seated with him in heaven, that because of his death on the cross and because we have said no to ourselves and yes to him, that we now carry that authority. But let me tell you something. A lot of us in this room think we sit on the bench. A lot of us think that we sit in time out or we sit discouraged, or we sit with our own performance and effort, and so we think we change seats from week to week based on how we think we were behaving during the week. And Christ is saying, again, take that's earthly thinking. That's how you compete on earth, but take your mind and begin to lift your mind up. You've been raised with Christ, and your heart can be seated with him in heaven. How you stand depends on where you sit. So when you take a low view of where you sit, when you talk down to yourself, when you say, God can't be that active in me, or I don't know if this is really that effective, if you're just a fan of God, you're going to seat yourself really low. But if you are sacrificial, loving God, and it's about him and his kingdom, you're reminded that you're setting your minds, you're putting your hearts where your identity is, that you're with him in heaven. Now, here's how this works. Your second fill in the blank is this. Mine would read, Dave is hidden with Christ. I'm hidden with Christ. I said, what does that mean, that, that you're hidden with Christ? The idea is we've died to ourselves, our old life, and now we are, it's like we were buried with Christ, and now his life is what is the supremacy. His. But however, our life is now directly attached to, it's hidden in his life, and it's hidden with him in Christ. And so here's two ways that this fleshes out. The first is that there's a degree of secrecy, that it's unseen by people. What does it mean that we're hidden in Christ? The reason Paul used the word hidden is that what has been declared and is right now is that almost but not yet, like, hey, it's happened, it's a done deal, you are rooted in Christ. But as of now, it's often unseen by people. It's, you're hidden in his life, in him. Secondly, there's a safety to being hidden in Christ. That means that there's a real salvation and a real inheritance. That what has been promised will come true. Even though people can't see it right now, and the people in the world, their mind is focused on the world and what they see on the earthly things, the, the normal. We just see what's around us, and we compare with what's around us. But there is a moment when you put your life in Christ's hands. You say, Jesus, I am yours. I'm saying yes to you. And you surrender your life to him. That you are now seated in the heavenlies and this security, this hope, you are hidden with him. What seems to be hidden is going to come true. And it's a beautiful thing. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 28, verse 7, he says this. It's a beautiful picture. The Lord is my strength. And my shield, my heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song, I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. There's just a natural response to being hidden in God, that we sing to him, that we praise him, that we're like, God, other people can't see it. It seems hidden to the world. 
But we know that we have an assurance of our salvation that's in you and because of you. And that makes my heart sing that you're available to me. We sang that song this morning, I am not alone. And our hearts resonate with that because we often feel alone, right? When we start saying, well, God, I love you, but I feel alone, then we're going to put ourselves on the bench. Or we're going to try to say, like, God, I love you, but I'm just going to blend in and do everything else the world does. God, I love you, but I'm going to try and balance the best of what I think the world offers with what I think Scripture offers. And even though the two are in conflict so often, I'm going to try to make a religion of my own making, and I'm unsatisfied, I'm, I'm unhappy. There's a safety. There's a joy. There's a security in being hidden in Christ. Now, salvation doesn't just mean that you come to Christ and you're like, I'm saved and that's it. Because authentic salvation, and hear me carefully on this, authentic salvation should always lead to the ongoing process of sanctification. So salvation always needs to lead to the ongoing forever process. It seems like process of sanctification was a big word. What does it mean? It means becoming more like Jesus. That so we are saved, but we have this ongoing, while we're in the flesh, nature that has to keep going and becoming more and more and more like Jesus. For a person to say, I am saved, but there to be no fruit, no works, no effort, no evidence in their life means this was not authentic salvation. Amen? I mean, the older I am, the more I'm just realizing no fruit, no salvation. Because salvation that's authentic always leads to an ongoing nature of sanctification that we become more and more like Jesus. So number three on your outline says this. Mine would read, Dave must set my mind on things above. I've got to set my mind on things above. It's this picture that when I remember I'm seated with Christ, I'm hidden with Christ, that I'm so often just concerned with all the things around me and all the people around me and the events around me and the, the stuff that's just so daily. And then you think of things like the Super Bowl coming up and you say, I'm a Broncos fan. And then you say, who won the Super Bowl four years ago? And you can't remember. And it, it becomes like it's such a big deal, but it's really not. And what do we do? We set our mind on things above. We've got to set our mind on things above, that there is more than just this life. That we need to honor and love the Lord. In fact, it's this picture of this, that uh, the Son of God should be the center of my solar system. See, what happens in life is this. I try to make me, my earth, my world, the center of the universe, the solar system, right? I try to make everything revolve around me. And if that were the case, man, things would get messy in a heartbeat, wouldn't it? Because we understand our solar system. But that the Son of God ought to become the center of my solar system. That life ought to revolve around him and his kingdom and his life. That's what it is. And I am now hidden in him. So it's not my glory. It's now, God, I, I live in such a way as to bring glory to your kingdom. And I am seated with you in the heavenlies. It's a beautiful picture. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, begins to tell us that once you've become saved and you set your mind on Christ, this ongoing process of sanctification, becoming like Jesus, needs to happen. And that means now it's time to get rid of some things in our lives. Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Now let me talk about the earthly nature. The earthly nature is two things. The earthly nature is always 
insatiable and unsatisfied, right? Think about greed for a minute. And he talks about greed here being idolatry. Greed is insatiable. It, it grows. Whatever appetite you feed grows. You would think we would get tired of it, but if we feed certain appetites, those appetites actually grow. And greed is the same way. When you, you never have enough, it's insatiable. There's always something more that you could have. And then even when money doesn't become an issue because maybe you've made enough money, then there's always something else you want. There's a covetousness about life. There's a, a self-serving nature of the earthly nature. And it is insatiable and it's unsatisfied, which leaves you and me empty. Have you ever had an experience you thought was going to be just this amazing experience and it left you empty? You ever been alone in a crowd? You ever gone to a big event to find out that it was frustrating? You ever spent all day at Disneyland and it was not the happiest place on earth? <laughs> you got kids who were in rebellion in the car and the way out there, you're just like, get in the car! Give me those ears! You know, just... That's life, right? But these are some of the areas where we need to kind of pull some weeds. It leads to self-worship. All these things lead to self-worship. And believe me, it's insatiable and it's unsatisfied. And so Paul says because of these things, these should not exist in the church. They're not healthy for you. They're actually harmful to you. And so I want to talk about three thorny weeds that we need to pull out of our life. And the first one of those thorny weeds that we need to pull out of our life are unholy appetites unholy appetites. And Paul starts off with four sex sins that you and I need to put to death. And here's again the thing. God created sex. Sex is beautiful. It's wonderful within the confines of what God created it to be. Brought and dragged outside of the confines of marriage, it becomes insatiable and unsatisfied. And it definitely experiences a law of diminishing returns. And we have a sex-saturated society that feels empty. If sex were the end all of everything, you would think that we have a very fulfilled society, but we do not. Why? The earthly nature of things is insatiable, it's unsatisfied. So what do we do? We've got these four sex sins that are on your outline, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, or evil desires. And they're basically all wrapped themselves around the idea of pleasure, pleasing the self. And here's the, the crazy thing is, when you and I ask pleasure to do what it was not intended to do, it never goes anywhere good. When we elevate pleasure and say, this pleasure, we want it to do for, uh, for us something it's never intended to do, it's not going to lead you anywhere good. You'll end up unsatisfied, insatiable, and trapped. Paul David Tripp writes this, quote, when I live for the short-term buzz of any pleasure, I go back again and again, each time wanting more and better so finding myself controlled by what I once could control. I look around one day, and I'm, I'm addicted and enslaved, and the bondage is not something that pleasure did to me. No, sadly, it's something that I did to me when I decided to ask something that was to remind me of my Savior to be my Savior. And that's what our culture is doing right now, isn't it? Sadly, we look around and we would love to say, oh, something else did this to me. But the truth is, I did this to me. We did this to me. And now we're enslaved by something that we ask this pleasure to be our savior. And what does it lead to? Entrapment. It's insatiable. It's unsatisfied. And you're trapped. 
We'd love to blame the culture. We'd love to blame something else. But somewhere along the way, you and I elevated pleasure in these ways outside of God's context to ask it to be our Savior instead of something that is beautiful, that reminds us of just how good God is in that right context, and that's where it ought to remain. See, created appetites lead to actions. Uh, i got to let you know something, that um, most of the appetites that you and I have are trained and learned. You say, what do you mean? So, well, they're actually trained and learned. I mean, it's no, su no surprise to a lot of us that many of us in this room are visual. But back in the 16th century, the most desirable part of the human body when it came to the idea of lust or attraction was a woman's ankle. Okay, just think about that. Like, you know, oh, if that skirt would just pull up and you see the ankle and you can see today, I, I love the United States. I got my, you know, my socks on. But it would be the woman's ankle. Now, let me tell you something. That has got to be trained and learned because some of you hate your ankles. And not only that, but I have a personal theory that that's probably when high heel shoes were invented because maybe sprained ankles were more attractive than, you know, regular ankles. But could you imagine that that was it? Like, you saw that. That was like, whoo. But now today, everything we see and everything we're conditioned and everything we're trained to appreciate and lust after is conditioned us by our society. So our society elevates what often is not even natural to lust after and to run after, and it's leaving our culture insatiable and unsatisfied and empty. See, parents, let me tell you something. Uh, your role in training your children in sexual purity is to help govern and guide their appetites. Govern and guide their appetites. See, I've seen parents come into my office even before and just kind of throw up their hands and go, well, you know what? Uh, they've got free will. And ultimately, I cannot control what their adult choices will be when it comes to sexual purity or not. I, I don't have control over that. And I would say, you know what? You're absolutely right. But here's where you do have control. It is your job and my job as parents that we help begin to direct their appetites that's our job. Don't passively sit back and go, oh, I can't do that. What you're doing is you're laying a foundation for their appetites to say, that is an unhealthy appetite. We need to grab that like a weed and pluck it out of your life. It's an unholy appetite. And so no, you can't do that. And yes, I get to look at what's on your phone. And you begin to not be passive as a parent and go, well, they're just going to go do what they're going to do. No, the Lord has instructed us that we are to guide their appetites. That is the role of the parent, just like Helping a child eat healthy, isn't it? That's our role. We don't just passively throw up our hands and go, okay, just well, just eat whatever you want. Not if we love them and we want them to learn to sacrifice and that the world and the universe doesn't revolve around them, but in a child-centered society, what does it tell us to do? Step back, let that child be the center of their universe and watch the planets collide, because they will. But that's what our culture is doing. So be weird, because normal's not working. It isn't. So be weird about it in the right way. We need to start to pull these things. When you start seeing these unhealthy, unholy appetites in the lives of your children, it is your job, it is my job to train your boys to be gentlemen, to be protectors, to care for other people. It is to train our daughters that they should be rubies and understand their value and their worth and that they are precious in God's sight. And they don't have to cater to everything in our society to try to receive love, but that they can be loved because they are loved by their creator first. And when they commit to that lifelong relationship, they're certainly welcome and ready to commit 
to another lifelong till death do us part relationship that we need to begin to help train them and walk with them in their appetites. It's not, it's not about telling them how sex works, which scares so many people. It's telling them how God intended sex to work so that they can identify counterfeits that will leave them unhappy, insatiable, unsatisfied, and empty. That's our job as parents. So it's like weeds, right? We've got to pluck the weeds. And the beautiful thing is, whatever appetites you reinforce, those appetites grow. So just as if you give yourself to lust and you continually feed that appetite, that appetite for lust is going to grow immensely. But how do you get over it? You starve that appetite. You begin to pluck those weeds. That's why Paul isn't like, hey, just try to be better in these areas. He says, put them to death. Weeds come up all the time, don't they? You might have lost your lawn like we did in our backyard uh, from the drought. A little rain happens. Grass doesn't come up. Weeds come up fast, right? They're like bigger than everything else. And, and that's just the way it happens. They come up naturally. That's the earthly way of things. That's the, the earthly nature. But our job is to come along and pluck the weeds so that something better comes up, what God intended. And that's our job, especially as parents. Here's the lie, though. The lie is that these weeds that we need to pluck are needs. That's what our culture tells us. These lies, they say, well, these weeds, oh, those are just natural. Those are the natural order. So those are needs. And then people say things like, well, you know, if God didn't want me to do it, then I wouldn't have this desire. I wouldn't have this thing. And the truth is it goes back to, well, what appetites have we awakened too early? What appetites have we indulged in? And we're to take those things and pluck those weeds out of our life and not believe the lie of the culture that says these weeds or needs, whether it's sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, or greed, those weeds are not needs. The interesting thing is that weeds come up every year, don't they? All the time. doesn't matter what you do. They're going to come back up. And so what happens is there's this ongoing nature. When Paul says put it to death, it's not a one time for all. It's an ongoing thing. Every dude in this room, every man in this room, listen, when it comes to ideas like lust or impurity, sexual immorality, that's every man's battle. Every man in this room, that is an ongoing work because as long as we're in this body of death, you and I are going to struggle in an area like that. And so what happens is we're going to need to pluck the weeds and we're going to need to pluck the weeds and it'll come up again and we need to put it to death and it'll come up again. We need to put it to death and we need to stop engaging our appetites that leave you unsatisfied, insatiable, and empty. Pause for just a minute. Close your eyes for just a minute. I want to ask this question and not run beyond it. What has God's Holy Spirit revealed to you as a weed that you need to pull up and die in your life? Is it sexual immorality? Is it impurity? Is it lust? Is it evil desires? Is it greed? Because God's Holy Spirit wants to call time out with you right here today and say, listen, those are idolatry. So we're going we're gonna to kill the idols. And maybe you just identify that this morning. You can open your eyes. The first thorny weed we pull out of our life is unholy appetites. The second unholy, uh, the second thorny weed we pull out of our life is unholy speech. Unholy speech. Colossians 3, 8 
says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, rage, anger, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. We've talked before that the tongue is a tattletale and it tells on your heart, right? Because what's on the inside here has a way of working itself on the outside here. So it's not a speech problem, it's a heart problem. And that's what Paul is getting to, that, that we begin to give Christ lordship over what goes on in our inner person, in our heart. And so he talks about several things here, that maybe for you it's verbal venting, or it's anger, or it's rage, or maybe it's malice and slander, you know that relational assassination that we do? Maybe it's filthy language, maybe it's lying, and, and lying is just, you know, become kind of second nature for you. Well, how do you change these things? First of all, you need to realize that a, a change of mind is going to lead to a change of the heart. So when I put my mind on the things of Christ, when I put my mind on the things above instead of just the relationships and everything around me, then I am in understanding and connecting with God's Holy Spirit. He's going to lead me in the fruit of the Spirit, which are everything opposite of what Paul's just listed here. Is lying a problem for you? Is it tough for you to even just say where you were and what you were doing because lines just become a second nature to you? That you intentionally withhold information and leave things out because it's just you're being self-protective. How about this? Are you just, has lying become second nature for you because you exaggerate? You take the truth of what happened, but you got to add a little something extra to it. What do you do with an unwanted interruption? The phone rings, and you don't want that phone call, but the kid answers it, and then they say, oh, you know, is your dad home, and what are you going to say back to them when they want to talk to you on the phone, and you don't want to be interrupted? What does your kid learn in that, right? What about trying to avoid criticism or, or punishment, just being self-protective? You, you, you get this thing, and so you, just, you paint the picture to be better for yourself because we have this nature to want to protect ourselves. Well, what's the source of all that? The source of all that is pride. It's really trying to make us, it's idolatry. It's trying to make ourselves and our protection, our comforts, and our words be the end all of everything. It's pride. It's failing to set our minds on things above. And what happens is then I'm not exercising Christ's power, the power of God's Holy Spirit in my life, to defeat Satan's temptations when it comes to my words, my actions. I'm not even considering myself dead to those things anymore and alive to Christ. In other words, what do you mean dead to those things anymore? Are we still experiencing them, right? Yeah, but the difference is in my earthly nature before I knew Christ, I compulsively will run into those things and not really have any out aside from maybe some temporary motivation. But because we have the Spirit of God, we now, because of the earthly nature and having the Spirit of God, have the power and the capacity to say no to sin where formerly we did not. It's a beautiful thing. So we can get rid of unholy appetites. We can pluck unholy speech. And the third thing we can get rid of is unwholesome prejudice. Unwholesome prejudice. Paul says it this way. Warning them against these things happening in the church, he says this in verse 9, Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
He gives four prejudices that should no longer exist in the, among Christ's followers, and they're right there in your outline. The first one is national. See, it always used to be this, this preference that you were either a Jewish or you were a Greek, and Greek meant everybody else. And so there's no Greek, there's no Jewish, it's now you are in Christ, and Christ is all. And he's in all. So it's saying there's no place for national prejudice. There's no place for religious prejudice. Are you circumcised or uncircumcised? See, that was the sign of being a Jew, is that you had a physical action, a part of your body that you could just say, hey, this is, I am a Jewish person. And then the, the temptation for the church in Colossae was that Jewish people were coming along trying to drag the New Testament church into the Old Testament practice of circumcision or not. And so literally new believers were like, should I, new male believers were like, should I get circumcised? And then there's always that guy who's like, hey, can't we just wear t-shirts? <laughs> Paul is saying what identifies you and I is not a t-shirt and it's not circumcision. That's been washed away. We are in Christ. He is the unifying factor. He is above all and he is sufficient in every way. There should not be racial prejudice. He, he uses the phrase here, these two that were often looked down on. They were barbarians or, or Scythians, and, and they were looked upon in just horrible ways. And he's saying, that's gone. That shouldn't be existing. And then there's social. Are you a slave or are you free? See, Christ followers must declare that all lives matter. Christ followers declare that life is sacred and should be protected. And when we go to India, Matt Lingo and I leave tomorrow. We're leaving for India for like 12 days. And so we're going to go and we're going to work with those in villages who are sex trafficked as children. And we're going to extend the love of Jesus with them. And they are the lowest caste and the lowest part of society. And they think, I don't have rights. And I get abused because of my social standing. I am, in a sense, a sex slave. I am not one who's free. I'm not part of the castes that are free. And we're going to go and extend love to them and love to their families and love to those who are under the powerful delusion that expressing their pleasure, even against children, will somehow leave them satisfied and whole. But in fact, it leaves them unsatisfied, insatiable, trapped, and empty. And we can bring the good news of Jesus to all of them. That's what Christ followers do. He also makes this statement. He says, listen, don't lie to each other as we just looked at. But he said, in other words, if you're laying lying down, you now pick up the new self. What does that look like? Well, if I lay lying down, I now, I'm not just empty, like, well, I don't have anything to say. I instead pick up truth. If I lay down sexual immorality, I pick up sexual purity. So it's us dying. We're dying to something. We're killing something. We're putting it to death. But we're laying it down. But the beautiful thing is we get to now pick something else up. Satisfied. That our mind is now the mind of Christ. It's on things above. And now we are experiencing the deep wholeness and filling that we've been longing for. And asking things that just can't satisfy to try to fill. Paul, in talking about these prejudices, says this. No one should think that they are at a disadvantage spiritually because of their social position. And let me tell you that in this room, no one should think that they are at a spiritual disadvantage because of their social position. No one. We are in Christ. He is all, which means you have everything you need for life and godliness, irrespective of your economic status, your social background, your heritage, your race, anything. But some of us in this room, we oftentimes, we, we, we put the stamp on ourselves. 
oh, I'm, I'm spiritually disadvantaged because I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Oh, I'm spiritually disadvantaged because I didn't come to Christ till way late in life. Or I'm, I'm spiritually disadvantaged because I've not read the whole Bible and know the whole thing. And, and what we do is we, we take ourselves off being seated with Christ and we put ourselves on the bench. And let me tell you that we are not victims. That we say, I have everything I need for life and godliness because of Christ. And no economic status, no social status should prohibit me from having any spiritual disadvantage. Let me tell you, when we go talk to these people in India and we're work, working with the delete, the least of these, they don't expect to be employed. They don't expect to be fed. They don't expect to be educated. Nothing. They think that they are supposed to be abused, that they're undoing the sins of some past lifetime because of their low position. And Paul would come along and say, you have no spiritual disadvantage. You are seated with Christ. You're just like you're a politician or you're in parliament. You are the, and it's a mind-blowing experience for people who have been under oppression their entire lives. It is a beautiful thing to watch. But in America, sometimes we self-select, don't we? Because of my addiction, I'm going to put myself on the bench. Because of my marriage or where it is right now, I'm going to put myself on the bench. Because of my children, they're not following the Lord right now, maybe. I put myself on the bench. Because of whatever, we start putting ourselves on the bench. And Paul would say, don't let that lie stay in the church. It will leave you unsatisfied and empty. But turn your mind to things above because you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we love you. And we need you. And I'm fully aware that God, even right now, there's people in this room who have been convicted today that they've been putting miracle grow on some weeds that shouldn't be in their life and that they've been leaving them unsatisfied. And so God, right now I ask you in Jesus' name to give us the mind that we are seated with you, that you give us everything we need to no longer be slaves to sin, that we can be free in Christ. And so God, we don't give up. We pick ourselves up and we just begin again. And right now, I'm just gonna ask in this room, as the lights are just dimmed a little bit, I'm just gonna ask this. Nobody's looking around, your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, but I'm gonna ask you by way of commitment today, if God's Holy Spirit, if you're a believer in Christ and God's Holy Spirit puts something on your mind, your heart today that you need to put to death, will you please just stand? Right where you are, just wave commitment. You're saying, God has told me today to put something to death. You just stand. Right where you are, just saying, God, I'm going to, uh, by way of commitment to you, I'm just going to stand. Let me tell you, I don't know about you, but every man should be standing in this room with me because it's every man's battle, and we need to keep putting those things to death, don't we? All over the room, people standing. It's just making a commitment. Let me pray over you if you're standing. Jesus, I ask that you would just, by your Holy Spirit, empower every person here to walk away from emptiness and to walk into the deep wholeness that we long for. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.